Thank you so much, Beth and team. Well done. That was a sweet song. Good morning. And welcome to this special day. I wanted to begin by talking about, thanks Renee, talk about those moments where you're uh, sitting there and you ever have those moments where you say to yourself, there's got to be more to life than this. Have you had those? Yeah, those? So some of you are like me. I feel like I have these on a regular basis. That there's, yeah, there's like, sometimes it's because the monotony of life or the boredom of life where I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, this, this is ridiculous. Anytime I walk into the DMV, I'm sorry if you work at the DMV, I'm just speaking truth. But every time I walk, you're waiting in that and you have to get that number and you're sitting and finally you get to the counter and then they say, go sit back down and wait again. And you're like, there's got to be more to life than this, right? Sometimes I get this feeling when there's this meaninglessness, like the activities that I'm doing have no eternal value whatsoever. Do you ever have that experience? Like even with the stuff I like, like Star Wars, you all know that I'm a big Star Wars fan. When the prequels came out, I was as excited as the next guy and there was all this energy and excitement and then I heard people weren't just going to wait in line for the opening prequels, but actually they were camping for like two weeks in preparation for that. And my family was like, Eric, are you going to go camp? I'm like, are you kidding me? Maybe I'll go there and tell them about Jesus, but there is more to life than Star Wars, right? There's got to be more. I'm also as big of a football fan as the rest of you, right? And I'm excited that the NFL is going to start. But sometimes the shallowness when I listen to sports radio and it's the minutia of injury reports and predictions and I'm going on and it doesn't matter what team they're talking about, Broncos or Bears, right? I'm just overwhelmed with how shallow it is and I think there's got to be more to life than Broncos or Bears. Do you you ever get that experience, yes? All the time, all right. Not to to pick on my kids too much, but I'm going to pick on Luke because he's away at college and he can't defend himself at all. But I remember these key moments in his childhood, like when he was on a t-ball team. And the parents are all excited and they're watching and the... And the coach is patiently setting him up on the t-ball tee and like they miss it and go and secretly I began to wish for outs. (laughs) Even on Luke's team. And then I found out that outs don't matter and runs don't matter. And not only was this meaningless in a grand sense, but specifically we don't keep score. And I was like, there's got to be more to life than this, right? Yes. 
And the parents, they start the game like this. But after the, I swear, 307 teammates that have gone to the tee, they're all like this. And then, is this the sum total of my life? What has happened? You understand? We are talking about a seven-year vision for SEC. And really rooted in this vision is that I believe profoundly that there is more. There's so much more that Father in heaven, that Jesus Christ came, that the Spirit of God actively is seeking to give us more, to pull us out of the monotony, out of the life of meaninglessness, out of that shallow life to a place of significance, of profound meaning, that he wants to work in us and within us and through us to make a difference in this world. This is the first week of three weeks, and I'm going to talk with you about three what you could call revelations or truths from the Word of God, rooted in the Word of God. And we're going to look at these, and really what these three things are, are paradigm shifts. And in some ways, these three paradigm shifts are a summation of my entire life and ministry here at SEC. I, I really mean that. that the, it's a summation and a clarity of what God has been stirring in my heart for a very long time. But then also I believe these three truths of Scripture that the Spirit of God continues to speak is going to point us to the next seven years. The next seven years of our life and our community together. Why seven years? Well, how many of you saw the eclipse? Did you see the eclipse or, uh, you know, look at it through special classes? Yeah. In fact, uh, there was preschool teachers and some staff. We were gathered out there, and we were all looking, and someone actually got a picture of the eclipse. Do we have that picture, Stephen? Is it at the end of the outline? I'm hoping that it's there. Do we? There. Look at that when our moon. What? That's no moon. It's a Death Star. Oh, that is so good. Let's pass the offering plates again. That alone was worth. Do you know the next time that our, we have a solar eclipse, do you know how long that will be? Seven years, huh? And did you know that that has absolutely nothing to do with our seven-year vision? I just wanted to show the picture, though. That's such a, a good picture. I'll talk about seven years in the weeks to come, but not right now. But we're going to talk about the life that you and I live, the community in which we live it in, and the ministry in which God has called us to. There's more. The life that we live, he's calling us to more. There's more to life. The community in which we live in, he's calling us into a community where we're exp experiencing one another in deeper and more profound and meaningful ways, that there's more 
to community that he has for us. And our ministry, he's calling us to ministries that are profoundly having an impact in this world for his kingdom, for the glory of God. There is more that he's calling us to. It's a seven-year vision about the more. Now, Jesus, he actually talks about the more in a number of different places. He talks about the life that he's inviting us to, this abundant, this meaningful, this full life. And we're going to look at one of those sections. In fact, I think it, it's really at the heart of the matter. If you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to turn to chapter 12. And chapter 12, you'll, you'll find a category that says, do not worry starting at verse 22 in most of your Bibles. But before that, Jesus tells a story and he makes this statement um, in verse 15 of Luke chapter 12. He says this, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Doesn't our culture need to hear that? He says life, true life, does not consist in abundance of possessions. In my Bible, I have that verse, life does not consist in abundance of possessions, and I have just a question written next to it. And the question is this, well then what should life consist of? What is life supposed to be about? What are we supposed to be going after? What are we supposed to be seeking? Well, Jesus then, if you move to verse 22, he says this. Then Jesus says to his disciples, therefore, why is it there? because he wants to tell us what life should consist of. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more. Life is more. Turn to your neighbor and say, life is more. Life is more. Life is more. Jesus for life is more than food, and the body is more. The body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. He gives us a number of illustrations to make sure we don't miss it. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. They, in a profound sense, trust in the provision of the creator. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? The answer is no one. And in fact, we know that worrying and stress will reduce the hours of our life 
let alone the quality of your life. Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? Why are you doing that? Why, why are you worry warts? Why are you going and worrying about this and worrying about that and going after that? Another illustration, consider the wild f- flowers, how they grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon, the king, in all his splendor was dressed like one of these who comes up rangewood and have seen the wild flowers on the hill with our church. Doesn't that look magnificent? He's saying, do you see that? That's how the father cares for fields. It's how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire So quickly it will be gone. How much more will he, God, clothe you, you of little faith? He connects faith and trust. How much do you really trust in your heavenly Father to provide? Or are we worrying, worrying, worrying? You of little faith, and do not set your heart. He's asking about your life and your quality of life. And he's also saying the heart of the matter is your heart. What do you set your heart on on a daily basis? What's driving you? What's moving you? He says, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world, the pagan world, those who do not know God, The pagan world runs after all such things. And your father, who's in heaven, he knows that you need them. Put your finger there. Hold on. You know, as I read this description of life that Jesus gives us, a visual image struck me. I used to have two little gerbils when I was in grade school. And in that gerbil cage, there was a, uh, a wheel. And those little gerbils would jump on that wheel, and it would spin and spin and spin and spin, and they'd run and run and run, and they would never get out of that cage. They'd never get anywhere. And as I read the description of life that Jesus is describing here, I said, how many of us are like that? How many of us are on that little gerbil wheel? And we're, we're spinning, spinning, spinning. Our little feet are going, going, going. And we never get where he wants us to go. There's an author, Greg Groeschel, and he wrote this book. He's a pastor, and he wrote it to Christians. And the book title is, I believe, Practical Atheists. It's Christians. This book was to, athe- uh, to Christians, not atheists. But he said, Christian atheists, he talks about Christian atheists. He says, when, one, when we believe in God, but we live like he doesn't exist. When we believe in God, but our lives do not reflect a profound trust and faith in him. Our lives reflect this diminished Faith. I think he could have entitled the, the book based on this passage of scripture and Jesus' description as the Christian pagan. The Christian pagan. We believe in God, but we don't trust in the fatherly care 
of our God. We don't trust that he knows us, that he's full of love for us. We don't trust that he is good and has good plans for us. Our lives do not reflect the providential care that the Father wants to have. We worry, worry, worry. In fact, if you were not to look at your neighbor but look at your own soul and use the litmus test of worry or anxiety and the level of worry and anxiety in which you live your day-to-day with, would you say that you just might be living a Christian pagan life? How many of us struggle to sleep? How many of us fret and are concerned. How many of us are, are focused and, and can't stop thinking about the things where will that ne- we're living paycheck to paycheck and, and the tenor, the, the substance of our life is just going from one thing after another and we're worrying, worrying, worrying. We're gerbils on that wheel. If we use the litmus test of how much our energy and focus of our life is directed towards physical things. The paycheck that we need, the the money that we need to earn, the clothes that we need to put on our children's back, the, uh, the, the responsibilities of all that we have to do to pay and meet, and we're going after all of these temporal things and such little time on the things that really matter. If we use that as a litmus test, how many of us would identify ourselves as living as Christian pagans? I've served a number of churches in different states over the last 20 years. And I want to suggest that Christian paganism is near epidemic proportions. For Christians that attend church and are engaged in a community of faith, it's still near epidemic proportions. For Christians that are not attending and a part of a community of faith, it's even higher. I see it all over the place, and I see churches that are trying to help people live better Christian pagan lives. And I'm not throwing any stones from glass houses. I'm with you. This church is with that. And I believe that Jesus saying, no, There's more. There's more. I don't want to teach you how to run better on that wheel. I want to give you a different life. I want to give you a life that is more. A a life that is, that, that I died. Jesus died, he's saying. I died for you to live. I did not die I believe Jesus is saying, I did not die that you would run the wheel better. I did not die to make some improvements in your life. I died to give you a new life, abundant life, 
kingdom life, that you would understand and see and live a radically different life based on the kingdom of God. Don't settle for just running the wheel in a better way. No, no, stop it. Get off the wheel and live the life that you were meant to live, the life that I filled your heart, your soul, your very bones in those moments of monotony, in those moments of meaninglessness, right there we can feel that life. There's got to be something more. And Jesus is saying, there is, there is. Let me teach you that life. Now, What should life consist of? Jesus answers it right there. If we continue on in the passage of scripture, continuing on verse, let's start with verse 30. For the pagan world runs after such things and your father knows that you need them. But, but, I'm gonna tell you something different. Seek not all that other stuff. Seek his kingdom. And all these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid. It's the opposite of faith, right? It's the opposite of trust. Is fear. Fear is another litmus test of are we living and embracing the life? How much fear do we have in our life? Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It's the Father's heart. It's his desire. It's what he's longing for. In the first paradigm shift, I want to share with you Many of you have heard my personal paradigm shift. I've been trying to live into this shift for over 10, almost 15 years now. And he's inviting you and I into this shift and to figure out how to live it better. And I wanted to to share with you my personal experience of the shift. And it came a number of years ago when I kept hearing the phrase kingdom. Kept reading the phrase kingdom. And I thought to myself, you know, I should probably know as a pastor what the kingdom of God is. But I realized that I didn't know. I was a seminary trained pastor and if someone would have asked me to give details, I would not have known. And so I decided to make a side study of that. And I thought maybe six or seven references that I could find in the gospels of Jesus where he'd talk about kingdom and I'd kind of do a word search and I'd study it for just a little bit. And I realized this was not going to be a short study. I realized that there was not just a few references by Jesus. I realized that this was his big idea. This was the thing you could say that he was fixated on, that he kept circling back around to again and again and again. And I began to ask the question, how did I miss this? Why does Jesus talk about this all the time? Just a little 
demonstration. Let's see if you can keep up with me. In Matthew chapter 3, turn there real quickly. Verse 17, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he begins with this announcement. Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I wonder, Jesus, why did you start with a concept that no one really understands well? Why did you, you only get one chance to make a first impression, Jesus. Why'd you start with this kingdom thing? And then if you look just a little bit farther down in chapter 4, when we're given a summation, Jesus starts his ministry. He starts preaching. He starts teaching. He starts healing and restoring. And then we're given a summation of that. And in verse 23, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. What did he say? They tell us, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus, why was that the sum total of your message? Why was that framework in which you you were communicating to the people? Jesus' most famous teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, which people have studied for centuries, generations, and wrestled. Do you know how he starts... The Sermon on the Mount, the beautiful attitude, uh, uh, attitudes, beatitudes. He begins and ends these with verse 3 in chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He ends the beatitudes with this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the... In the crucial moment when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Do you know what's at the center of the Lord's Prayer? You know, you've been praying it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy come and will be done. What are you praying? What are you praying when you learn that? And why is it so associated with the will of God? Flip over a little bit to Chapter 10, when Jesus sends his disciples out to do what he's been doing, it says this, verse 7, as you go, proclaim this message. Hmm, I wonder what message he's going to have them proclaim. The kingdom of heaven has come near, near, heal heal the sick, raise the dead, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. One of Jesus' most famous teaching styles and preaching styles was parables, right? I've studied the parables again and again and again. Chapter 13, you begin to realize that the parables are pointing not to different subjects, but pointing to one subject. Can you guess what subject that is? Look at verse uh, 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. Verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in the field. Look at verse 
44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake, caught all the kinds of fish. Look at verse 52. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of the house who brings out the storeroom new treasures as well as old. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. I'm sitting in my office in Holland, Michigan, and I'm wrestling through that, and I'm saying, oh my gosh, I can't get this, my head, he's filling up my head, he's filling up my heart, why is he doing this, why is Jesus all over this, and how did I miss this, how come no one ever told me about the idea of kingdom, I said, God, I gotta put this down and leave it there, I'm gonna go into the Old Testament and just get away from the concept of the kingdom for a while, <laughs> I started studying the book of Daniel, and he talks about four kingdoms and he talks about the fifth kingdom. I'm saying, what is going on? What, what is happening? What's Jesus doing? What's he saying? What does this change? How does this change my life? How does this change my ministry as a pastor? How does this change the church that I'm longing for? How does this change the ministry that he's called me into? And he began to speak and teach and process. And friends, I know that many of you have heard this before, but I do think he's calling us to a special clarity that we would have in our lives. That Jesus is inviting us into this fresh and new way. A, a, a good way to understand the beginning of Understanding a concept that is full and has a lot of context. Would, for our purposes this morning, would you understand the kingdom of God first and foremost as a way of life? A way of life. That he's inviting us to a different way to think, to understand and to live. He is inviting in his reference to kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. He's saying, I want to get you off of the wheel, off of the wheel, the gerbil's wheel, off of the meaninglessness, off uh, of the monotony, off of all the shallowness of life. And I want to teach you a different way to live. In that room in Holland, Michigan, in my church, he began to teach me a different way to live. And I believe he wants to do that for you and I. And instead of a wheel felt led a triangle to help us understand. And this triangle represents the abundant life or kingdom life. If you like to take notes in your bulletin, it's right there. And there's three words. There's actually going to be more than three words. But he wants to teach us how to know the kingdom how to understand the kingdom. Jesus came, and he came. I think it's significant that there's a reason why Jesus loved, lived among us first and foremost as a teacher, as a rabbi, as he came proclaiming 
and teaching. The Apostle Paul would later in 1 Corinthians 2.16 say this, but we have the mind of Christ. We have, Paul would talk about, a mindset, a way of understanding the world and that Jesus is wanting to give us his mind, his understanding. He wants to teach right into the questions that we have, the wrestle, wrestling that we have. Another way to understand that is he wants to work with our vision and what we see, how we see this world. He said, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's got to be the spirit of God. He wants to give us a lens of the kingdom of God. He wants us to look out and for us to begin, begin to see his kingdom, the kingdom of light, begin to see the, the kingdom of darkness. Friends, I want to suggest that each and every one of us have patterns of thinking. We have patterns of thinking, how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, and how we think about this world. And I want to suggest that many of us wrestle with a little something I call stinking thinking. Those patterns of thinking about God, about ourselves, about one another, it stinks. It's not truthful. It's filled with lies from the enemy. And yet there's patterns there that we return to again and again and again. When I watch the news, I can hear the stinking thinking from people. When I talk, sometimes in my own mind, at how I think about things, I see stinking thinking going on. And Jesus wants to transform how we think, what we see, how we understand. Romans 12, 2, Paul said this, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. You've been raised in these patterns. You've understood these patterns. You think in these patterns. He says, don't conform any longer to the patterns of these world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There it is, will again, the kingdom of God. How we understand that to transform our stinking thinking into kingdom thinking. I was reaching out to a friend just this past week via email. And this friend, we were going back and forth and he was sharing about the difficulty in his life, his depression, his abuse, his divorce, his unemployment, all these things. And he said, you know, I just feel like God is a little kid with a magnifying glass standing over an ant farm. And I'm one of the little ants and he's just delighting and burning me. I have a heart and compassion for my friend. That is stinking thinking, isn't it? That's not who God is. That's not a way to understand the things we struggle with. I began to talk with him, much more to be said, about the heart of the Father, the love of God, and his way of seeing the brokenness 
in his life. Friends, he wants, wants to transform how we see, how we understand, how we know the kingdom and transform our minds. Now, one way that I feel he continues to re renew my thinking day by day by day, I'm just going to put a word here, is in prayer. That as I pray the Lord's Prayer in outline form, as I pray, my Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and I, I pause and I just give adoration and praise to God who's reigning in heaven. And then I pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pause and I begin to pray, what is not right in this world? What is not part of the reality of heaven? What does God want to transform and renew? What do I need to pray that his kingdom, the reality of the kingdom of heaven would spill into my life, the lives that I love, the, the church here in this world, what is broken, what needs fixed, what needs restoration. And as I pray that on a daily basis, you know what's happening? He's renewing my mind. He's renewing my understanding. He's renewing how I understand my own life. It's a process. It's a process. But he's carrying me along. Now, the second word we have no, the second word is be. Now, it can be an awkward word. In fact, because I'm broken, the first thing I think of is the movie, movie Caddyshack and with Chevy Chase saying, be the ball, be the ball. And here I'm saying, be the kingdom, be the kingdom. But the reason I chose that word is because when Jesus was being challenged by some religious leaders and they said, he said, the kingdom is not here nor there, but the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom is growing inside of you. There's this amazing simultaneous work that's a principle of the kingdom that as we seek to press into more of the kingdom life, the kingdom actually presses deeper within us. As we seek to go deeper into this new and abundant kind of life, so the kingdom of God deepens within us. Another way to understand that is the idea of rhythms, rhythms of the kingdom. I thought about using rhythms here, but I can never remember how to spell it, so I didn't want to misspell it, so B was much easier. But if you think of it this way, rhythms of the heart... What are the rhythms of the heart? Jesus talked about the heart all the time. And he said, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away from what was sown in their heart. You see, the enemy, the kingdom of God, is like seeds planted in the garden, the soil of your heart. And that the Father is wanting to grow this. But did you know that we have an enemy of our soul? And what does he want to do? 
boy, he doesn't want that seed to grow. He wants to uproot it. He wants to take it out. He wants to pull it. Otherwise, it will grow into something beautiful. Otherwise, your life will grow into something beautiful and meaningful. If you think about rhythms of the heart, I want to suggest something else. Not only do we have broken patterns of thinking that are based on the world, but we have broken patterns or rhythms of our heart. That our hearts, some of us, our hearts beat to the rhythm of bitterness or cynicism or racism or prejudice or anger or gossip. Boom, 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 boom. And we're living there. We're living there. And it is affecting our lives. And Jesus is saying, I want to bring this kingdom. I want to teach you. I want to deepen the kingdom in the garden, the soil of your heart, because that's where it begins. That's where it begins. I want to transform heart and soul. I want to teach you to not live in those broken rhythms. I want to transform those rhythms of bitterness into rhythms of forgiveness, those rhythms of prejudice into the rhythms of equality, transform the rhythms of hate into love. Let me teach you. And then you'll begin to be the kingdom. And then as he deepens that kingdom in us, it will begin to overflow. And then we'll begin to live from the inside out and those rhythms of the heart begin to translate to works of the hands. And we begin to transform into how we live or you could call it, just using the word, the ways of the kingdom. We begin to learn and sacrifice and live disciplines that are there. The apostle Peter said this, for you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You know those moments when you said there's got to be more? No. But, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, Jesus was saying that I want to teach you new, new rhythms of the heart and new ways in which you live your life the di disciplines that you live, that we get to live not selfish, self-centered lives, but selflessness, that we get to get off the wheel and stop grasping for more of the physical stuff, but we begin seeking God's kingdom in our acts of kindness, in our love, in our forgiveness, in our testimony, to others. And that brings us to the final simple word, which is simply do. That's not too complex, is it? 
right? No, be, do. No, be, do. Know the kingdom. Be the kingdom. Do the kingdom. Do the works of the kingdom. When Jesus gave the parable of the wheat and the weeds, it was a picture of this world. And he said, people are either wheat or weeds. And listen to how he describes the people, the wheat. He says, the good seed, the wheat seed, stand for the people of the kingdom, the people who understand the love of the Father, people who are living in and pressing in and wading into more of the kingdom. We begin to live transformed and abundant lives, and then we long to share this kingdom with others. That's why Jesus sent out his apostles, and he said when it sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick, he said the same message, the same life, these same patterns of things thinking, uh, of believing, of living, share that with others. And we begin to see this increase. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast that a woman took and mixed into about six pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. The yeast is the kingdom of God. The dough is the world. The woman, you can make an argument, is you and I. And as our hearts break, for this broken world, we begin to knead the dough, knead and, and work the yeast, work the kingdom of God into the lives of our friends who are broken and need the presence of the Father. We begin to work the dough and the kingdom into the lives of our enemy because they need the transforming power of the kingdom. We begin to work the dough of this world and we hear the broken evil that's happening in this country and around the world and we long to see God's beautiful justice, the reality of heaven in all the land. Friends, this is a life this is a way of life. And in fact, I began talking with the consistory and the staff about a 21-year vision. And they're like, Eric, some of us aren't going to be around in 21 years. <laughs> and really, my heart, the reason is because I believe that this is the Christian life. This is not the Christian pagan life. This is not the empty life. This is the more life. This is the abundant life. This is the life that Jesus, and once we get to the know, be, and do, guess what? We start again. We start with the transformation of the heart, or of the mind. We start with the transformation of the heart. We start with the transformation of our lives and what we do, and we serve and seek the kingdom of God. Friends, I'm inviting you to go on this journey for me, with me. I'm going to talk about the seven years and what that means more next week. But I'm inviting you, and, and I, I want to give you these three words, and I want to just ask you 
to pray. There are three different words, but I, I, this has to do with your involvement, your calling, the, what's the calling on your life. And here's the three words. Engage, contribute, and lead. Some of you, maybe you're new. I met a, a number of new folks this morning before the service. Maybe you're new. I'm going to be inviting you to take a step to engage in this kingdom life. To engage. You know what? I left out one of my favorite points. Do you know how many times Jesus says kingdom in the gospels? I was thinking six or seven of the four gospels over a hundred times. In fact, a hundred and six to be exact. 106 times. It's going to take us a while to figure out what Jesus was talking about with the kingdom and the significance for you and I. 106 times. This is an invitation, some of you, I, I want to invite you to engage in this different kind of life, to step off the wheel the gerbil's wheel, and engage in this life. Some of you have been engaged, and I'm going to ask you to go one step further, and would you begin to make meaningful and sacrificial contributions to this kingdom life community? And then finally, we'll talk more about this. Some of you, he's inviting you to lead. We need leaders. We need kingdom leaders, leaders in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to remind you, this is one of three. There's only one paradigm shift. But I just want you, I'm going to ask you, engage, contribute, and lead to all three of these paradigm shifts. Would you take some time to prayerfully consider what he is saying to you about the kingdom life. Let's pray. Father, would you break us from Christian paganism? Lord, would you help us to stop living with a diminished faith? Would you help us to stop saying we believe you and yet our lives reflect something completely different. Jesus, would you teach us by your spirit to live the life we were created for, to live the life that you died for us to have, to live the life of abundance, of meaning, of intimacy, of power, of presence, of peace. In your name we pray. Amen.